2 Corinthians chapter 1. And if you do not have a Bible, uh, there should be a pew Bible in front of you. We encourage you to use that. You'll find 2 Corinthians chapter 1 on page 965. 2 Corinthians chapter 1 and beginning in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all of our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken. For we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. For we don't want you to be unawares, brothers and sisters, of the affliction we experience in Asia, For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. You also must help us by prayer, so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. And now if you'll turn to chapter 12 of 2 Corinthians, in verse 1. I must go on boasting, though there is nothing to be gained by it. I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know this that this man was caught up into paradise, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. On behalf of this man, I will boast, but on my own behalf, I will not boast, except of my weaknesses. Though if I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool, for I would be speaking the truth, but I refrain from it, so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that he should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecution, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Father, thank you for your word, and uh, may you help us to see you through your word today. We thank you for the privilege of singing to your praises, and we would ask that the Lord Jesus would be honored, that we would encounter him to meet us at our point of need as your children as we're called to a suffering life. And as those who have come today, they may not know Christ. They may know about him, but yet have not encountered him in the forgiveness of sin. May you grant an opening of their heart to see their separation. Would you grant them repentance, grant them faith. Let them walk out as new creatures in Christ. And we thank you for the privilege of an open Bible this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. I do want to make a note. I know there are some visitors today. And if you are a visitor and it's your first time to Quinesset, 
Um, you are our honored guest. We're certainly glad you're here. Uh, we are having a family lunch right after the service, and there is a lot of good food down there. So we would invite you to stick, uh, hang out with us if you, if you are able and have lunch with us. And at any rate, we want to make your visit uh, um, uh, helpful, so if we can in any possible way, please see us after the service. Well, I want to start out uh, thanking you for praying for us, for caring for us, for serving us, for reaching out, and for loving us. Uh, We have been recipients of much of God's grace and mercy over this last month, uh, certainly by the church family embracing us and um, and showing just the love of Christ to us. We also are in the process of, I don't believe we could call it anything less than a miraculous recovery. Uh, when, we, when we look at uh, the process, we, or I should say the progress we've made uh, in my ability to swallow and my voice, which is still getting better, I hope, um, but we are grateful to the Lord and for your prayers that uh, we're able to be here today with you. And so uh, there's more testing, there's more monitoring uh, that's going to happen, and we'll keep you posted with all of that. So, but this isn't about us today. Now, before we go back to Romans, and if you recall, we've been uh, working our way through Romans, which will be a pretty long journey. Um, but as we, as we thought about this and coming back, I wanted to spend two weeks and deal with the, the, the topic of suffering, of suffering. And I want to do that for two reasons. Number one, I want to encourage you, because suffering is a lot of every one of us. And the second reason why I want to deal with the topic of suffering is to help to see the good purposes in our suffering. To help to see that suffering, though painful, God has very good purposes in our suffering. Now, I know many of you, and John, one of our elders, you know, wonderfully and, 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 and godly prayed for many of you by name, and there's more. Every single person under the sound of my voice suffers. And so what I want to do for the next two weeks is, because of the burden I have for you and my love for you, I want to enter into this. I know where you are. And secondly, let's see what God says about suffering. Now, we're going to do that in two ways, two ways. Uh, We're going to do this somewhat topical today. And then the passages that we read last, just in the beginning of the message, we're going to expound those and look at the Apostle Paul. 2 Corinthians is a book of suffering. It's a book of suffering in joy. If you would work your way through 2 Corinthians, you're going to find six specific accounts of severe suffering in the life of the Apostle Paul. And so we're going to spend time expounding, as I mentioned, chapter 1 and chapter 12 next week in looking specifically at the purposes of suffering for the believer. But what I want to do today is, as I mentioned, go through topically, because if you look at the scripture, like redemption that runs a wonderful thread from Genesis to the end, suffering equally runs from Genesis to the end. And so it's a good exercise to get a broad picture of suffering from Genesis through the Revelation so that we will have some foundation and that we will be able to understand a little more about this thing that we're all called to and that is suffering. And then we'll be able to see from God's perspective the lessons that he wants us to learn through suffering. And when it comes to suffering, as I mentioned, no one is immune to this. 
And there are so many forms of suffering. There is physically su- physical suffering. There is spiritual suffering. There is emotional suffering. There is mental suffering. We go through and we see that all of these appear throughout human history uh, from the, the account of the garden all the way through to the end of, of the time when glorification comes. And it's extremely important, as Christians in particular, that we understand that God teaches through suffering. And that God in particular will enroll every one of his children in the school of affliction to learn lessons and purposes that you cannot learn apart from the fiery furnace. And so we want to look at that, and it's getting a little ahead of ourselves, but I want to lay the foundation because there are some of you here are not believers. There are some of you here are not, you know, in union with Jesus Christ, and you suffer. And that is the lot of every single human being. I want you to turn to Genesis chapter 3. And we're going to look at various portions of Scripture as we trace this thread of suffering and able to see that this is the lot of every single person. Now, the inevitability of suffering, I really don't need to say that. And I'm not insulting your intelligence. Suffering has touched every one of you. Suffering is touching every one of you. And suffering will touch every one of you. It cannot be avoided. It cannot be medicated. It cannot be refused. And it cannot be ignored. David Paulison, who not long ago went to be with the Lord, said this, quote, You have experienced, you are experiencing, and you will experience afflictions, end quote. Now, it's easy to remember that suffering is the lot of every human being. It is easy even to encourage other people in their suffering that this is the way life is. It is very easy to forget that when you're suffering. It is very easy to come along someone who's suffering when the seas in your life are fairly, fairly calm. But when you're in the, in the depths of suffering, it's very easy to, easy to forget that suffering is inevitable in the human experience. And suffering, uh, in, its simplest, in its simplest cause, though it's complex, its simplest cause by stating it, is suffering is a result of sin. Suffering is a result of sin. Now, I know you Bible scholars are, are sitting there and you're looking at me and saying, Jim, I know that. And I know that you know that. But I want you to know that when you're suffering severely. Look at Genesis chapter 3. Not only when the Garden of Eden experience of our first period, our first periods, uh, parents disobeyed God and sin came into the world, but a, a new experience came in upon them which they never knew before the fall. And it's summarized in one word. Look at Genesis chapter 3 verse 16. God is now leveling the curse upon disobedient humanity. He says to the woman, I will surely multiply your pain in childhood. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Curse is the ground because of it. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you are taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Three times in this text, in these, in these short verses, 
we have the word pain appear. Pain was not part of the human experience. Prior to the fall in the Garden of Eden, they knew not pain. We, this side of heaven, know nothing but pain. And so we see that all humanity suffers. And this is not just unique. This is every single human being, Christian or non-Christian, you suffer pain because of what happened in the Garden of Eden. And if you don't interpret the world of suffering, and you don't interpret what's going on in the lives of sufferers through the Garden of Eden, you will never have an answer. It must come through the painful experience that disobedience uh, had brought upon our first parents and humanity because of what they did to God and His Word. The Apostle Paul would tell us that this pain extends even further into creation. In Romans chapter 8, verse 20, you don't need to turn to it. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of Him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together. The whole creation is in the pains of childbirth, he would say. And Paul would say, not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly. Suffering produces groaning. Suffering produces this, this, this weightiness about us. That there are times, like we would read in Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, that we despair of life itself. But as the Word of God opens up with the reality of pain due to sin, look at Revelation 21. This is why it's important to trace this through the whole of Scripture. I'll say this a couple times, but it's extremely important. You must have a solid theology of suffering. If we don't have a right theology of suffering, we will not suffer well. And we will not learn what God has for us. And one of the strongest testimonies that you give to a suffering world is how you suffer well. Look at Revelation 21 verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. That's where it was in the Garden of Eden before the fall. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. That's a pre-fall picture. He shall wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor what? Nor pain anymore. What entered into the Garden of Eden exits in heaven. Is that sin that brought pain, the gospel brings deliverance from pain. It is in the anticipation of being delivered. And that's not escapism. That is the reality that we'll be in a place where we'll never suffer again. We'll never have pain again so that we'll be able to enjoy God and enjoy the fullness of what it means to be His children for all eternity. Suffering right now distracts us. Pain distracts us. There'll be no distractions there because sin will be gone and when sin is gone, there is no pain. Now suffering, not only was it uh, appearing in Genesis in the books of the beginning... 
It also is a dominant theme in the wisdom literature of the Bible. Read, read the Psalms and see the pain of the psalmist. And remember Job, our friend Job? Job was a book of suffering. In Job 5, 6 through 7, we read, For affliction does not come from the dust, nor does trouble sprout from the ground. But man is born to trouble as the sparks fly upward. And in Job 14, 1, Man who is born of woman is a few days and full of trouble. And that defines each of you. You know far more seasons of trouble and sorrow than you do of happiness and contentment. That is the lot of being in this world under the curse of suffering. Ecclesiastes, Solomon, who tried to find, tried to escape suffering by all the pleasures of the world, he says in Ecclesiastes 2.23, For all his days, speaking of mankind, are full of sorrow. Now what I've just described is every single human being, irrespective if you're a Christian or not. But here's where the transition, and this is so important, is that the transition in the world of suffering for the Christian is different. For the, for the Christian, we will suffer. But unlike the Christian, we know what's behind the suffering. We know what God intends to do through our suffering. And, and let, me, let me just encourage you. Do not act like a non-believer, an unbeliever in your suffering. Don't complain. Don't complain. Whether it's the irritation of you can't find your keys or to whether you get a medical diagnosis that you have a terminal disease, don't complain in your suffering because that makes you just like the world. And the world has no answer for suffering. And if they look to us for the answer of suffering and we're just like them, there's no credibility to what we're offering. And so let's take a look then of the inevitability of Christians suffering. Of Christians suffering. Look at Acts chapter 14. Acts chapter 14 and verse 19. Not only is suffering inevitable to all human beings because it comes from sin, either directly or indirectly. But if you're a Christian today, you're called to suffer. You are called to a life of suffering. Now, I don't want you to look at this as being morbid and say, oh, that's joyless. No, it's not. Some of your deepest joy will occur in your deepest suffering. And Jesus tells us when he was, uh, had his setting with his disciples in the upper room, that intimate setting of the Last Supper, the washing the feet, he would tell these fearful, suffering, emotionally, disciples these words. I have said these things to you that in you, 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 in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. That is so loving of God to tell us in advance what the cost is to follow him. He tells us in advance that the very call to be a disciple of his, a very call to follow Christ, is a call to take up the cross. And in Luke chapter 9, verse 23, Jesus would say this wonderful invitation with conditions. He says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. The cross is not a piece of inoffensive jewelry that you wear around the neck. The cross is not some beautiful ornament 
hanging in a church. The cross is not something on a steeple. It's not on the dashboard of your car. I hope you don't have one. (laughs) Nor is it sitting on a table or a mantle in your home. The cross is an instrument of shame and death. It is an instrument of suffering. And the Lord Jesus would tell us straight up, if you're going to be mine, it won't be your profession of faith. It will be your practice of faith that includes the willingness to take up a daily suffering of bearing the cross and walking in obedience to my commands. And that's why few find the way, narrow is the way. The Apostle Paul knew, and we'll see next week in his life, you know, uh, the cost and the purposes suffering unfold in his life and for us. But look at Acts chapter 14, verse 19. One of the most important things we do in the discipleship process, when someone comes to Christ and we, we grow them, we need to tell them straight up what the cost is. We need to tell them straight up what it means. It's not just, hey, get Jesus in your heart and then go do what you want to do. Just live the life. You got it all secure. Heaven's your home. That is a false gospel. It is not true. What we have to do is what Paul does to these young believers in Asia Minor. We need to tell people up front, and we even need to tell ourselves up front, There is a tremendous cost to be a Christian. There is a tremendous price to pay. And the price is suffering. It's suffering. Look at verse 19. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium. And having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city. Supposing that he was dead. Don't just gloss over that. That's pretty severe suffering. And yet what does he do? You're going to find that the very place that he was stoned, Lystra, he went back. I'm thinking, Paul, why? (laughs) I mean, they just stoned you. And Paul would look at me and say, Jim, it's because I live for Christ, not me. And there are young believers that came to Christ, and I need to tell them about following Christ. And that's what he would do. Look what happens. But when the disciples, verse 20, gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city. And the next day he went on with Barnabas Barnabas to Derbe. And when they had preached the gospel to that city and had been many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, the very place that he was stoned. And notice what he went back to do. Strengthening the souls of the young believers, the young learners, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying this, Through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Young believers, they probably don't know a whole lot about justification by faith. They're probably not going to be able to defend the Trinity. They know that they've been changed by the gospel. And what does Paul do in the discipleship process? He makes sure that they know that what you signed up for isn't easy. That what you signed up for is hard. And that you must go through much tribulation. That's why the church is so important. Because know what I need and what joy needs, and we've experienced that? I need to be surrounded by fellow sufferers that know how to get my mind and my heart off of my selfish self and get it on the suffering Savior. That's why the church is so important. And if you isolate yourself from church, if you isolate from the fellowship of God's people, then you are trying to go this thing alone and you won't make it. 
you will default into some type of complaining and some type of justification of whatever. We need, as sufferers, we need to be with fellow sufferers. And the strength of the church, as John prayed, is our love for one another in our suffering so that we have a credible message to tell the world out there that, hey, there's a suffering Savior. And he wants to come aside and forgive you and to cleanse you from the cause of your suffering and now change your suffering that makes no sense to suffering that makes perfect sense because it makes you like him. There's a man named Ajaf Fernando. You may not have heard of him. He's ministered in Sri Lanka for a very long time. Youth ministry. He's wrote some really, really good books. He wrote one called The Call to Joy and Pain. Embracing Suffering in Your Ministry. And by the way, every one of you, if you're a Christian, you're in ministry. You're in ministry. Just prior to the service, I was talking to Matt about the ministry of encouragement. And how he uses the gift of encouragement in my life. Like many of you do. And I'm not targeting him just to target him. Just an illustration which I didn't even have written down. And so, but the point I want to get here is that every one of you are in ministry. You are responsible and you are your brother and sister's keeper. Especially when it comes to suffering. Well, this is what uh, Fernando would write in his book. uh, Embracing Suffering Your Ministry. I thought this was keen insight. And he's looking from being in, 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 in a faraway place, looking at the Western church. He says, quote, I think one of the most serious theological blind spots in the Western church is a defective understanding of suffering. There seems to be a lot of reflection on how to avoid suffering and on what to do when we hurt. We have a lot of teaching about escape from suffering and therapy for suffering But there is inadequate teaching about the theology of suffering. Christians are not taught why they should expect sufferings as followers of Christ. And why suffering, and here's an important statement. Why suffering is so important for healthy growth as a Christian. So suffering is viewed only in a negative way. End quote. We must have a proper theology of suffering, realizing it is a result of sin, so all will suffer. But secondly, we must be able to distinguish the life of a Christian, that suffering is an integral element in the call to follow Christ, and that suffering is one of the primary tools and schools that God uses in His children. There are things, I've said this once, uh, I'm saying it now, and I'll probably say it again, is that there are absolute necessary lessons and there are spiritual virtues you cannot develop without affliction. There are things in your life as a Christian, even depths of the fruit of the Spirit, that cannot be learned without fiery furnaces. But the thing about the Christian life, though it's walked with many tears and though it's walked with much pain, It's walked with the one who walked it before us. And it's walked with the one who walks with us. And it's the one who will grant you a fellowship with himself that you will not know apart from suffering. I believe there's a lot of joyless Christians. A lot of joyless Christians because we don't handle suffering well. 
is we're all stressed out. We're all full of anxiety over the cares of this world. And we're all stressed out and anxiety ridden over some physical uh, suffering. And I'm not diminishing physical suffering. Believe me, I'm in it. But the problem is, is that we look for comfort and we look for ease in a life that is not promised to us. And until we get a proper theology of suffering, I don't believe we are going to suffer well. And there will be a lack of joy. And there will be a lack of being the church. And we don't have anything to offer a world that needs to see the living church. Okay, so that's the inevitability of suffering. Again, the foundation being laid today so we can look at Paul's life in an expositional way next week. And so the inevitability of it, all of us will suffer by, because of sin. Whether you're a Christian uh, or not, you suffer and you would have lunch with me afterwards and you say, you're right, I suffer. But as a Christian, you need to understand that your sufferings are sanctified. That your sufferings are purposeful. Your sufferings are for many good reasons. So let's move in and, and briefly in the time we have left. Let's look at suffering and the sovereignty of God. The sovereignty of God. Now I know this is a hard area. Suffering and the sovereignty of God. Many of you, if not all of you, had at times suffering friends who aren't Christians who look at you and say, if God is so loving as you say, if He's so good, then why all the suffering? Why all the, the pain on innocent people? Well, first, there's no innocent people. But don't say that. I mean, <laughs> say that after the, the, the next conversation. Don't come at them and say, well, God is sovereign, God is good, and you just have to believe that. That's true. But, oh, friends, beloved brothers and sisters, be sensitive to the sufferer that's an unbeliever. Because we tell them that God is love. And we tell them that God is holy. And we tell them that God is just. And we tell them that God is merciful. And it's true. All those are true. But when you have a family that loses a loved one, a young loved one, or a loved one in general, or you see some catastrophic event come in the life of an unbeliever, and you try to tell them, come to Jesus, God loves you, and He has a perfect plan for your life, that is absolutely hurtful. Yes, we talk to them about the sovereignty of God, but don't be afraid to say, listen, I don't have it all figured out. But I can tell you this, is that God is good, and God is loving, and I suffer with you. But I have met someone who revealed himself to me that enables me to suffer well. Let me talk to you about the suffering Jesus. So, this is not the time to, to unpack suffering and the sovereignty of God. I've been reading on the sovereignty and the suffering of God a lot for the last few weeks. And th- this is not something you can just gloss over. But this isn't the purpose of today. I want us to look at the sovereignty of God, you know, in this limited time frame as it applies to us as Christians. Many of you know Andrew Murray and you've read some of his books. I'm sure you've been helped by his books. In 1895, Andrew Murray was staying as a guest in a home while traveling for preaching. One morning, he lay in bed because of his back, injured a few years prior, and he was suffering severely. When his hostess brought him breakfast, she told him that a troubled, suffering woman had come to the house asking for his counsel. Murray handed her a piece of paper and said, Just give her this advice I'm writing down for myself. It may be that she'll find it 
helpful. Now, I want you to listen to this. This is really, really good. This is what he wrote of himself to share with her. In time of trouble, say, first, he brought me here. It is by his will I am in this straight place. In that I will rest. Next, he will keep me here in his love and give me grace in this trial to behave as his child. Then say, he will make the trial a blessing, teaching me a lesson he intends me to learn and working in me the grace he means to bestow. And last say, in his good time, he can bring me out again. How and when, he knows. Therefore, say, I am here by God's appointment, in his keeping, under his training, for his time. That's how a Christian has to look at suffering. Now, when I read that, I, my first response is, I'm not there. And you're probably saying the same thing. But aren't you so gracious that the sovereign hand of God is also the teaching hand of God? And that he's patient? And that he'll put us back in the remedial classes if we need it, which we do? And that he will put you through summer school to get the lesson? Now when it comes to God's sovereignty and and suffering, there's three things that sums, sums up, and it's inadequate, I know that. But it's not our purpose to study the sovereignty of God. The simple definition of God's sovereignty is found in three words. The Lord reigns. The Lord reigns. He's a supreme ruler over all things, all people, with authority, right, and ability to accomplish all that he wants according to his good pleasure. That's our God. He is supreme ruler over all things, all people, with the authority, with the right, with the ability to accomplish all things according to his good pleasure and will. And there's so many scriptures that we could trace this through for weeks, but we want to get back to Romans. But as you go through the scriptures, you're going to find many examples of God's people acknowledging his sovereignty. And friends, sovereignty is the most comforting of doctrines you will ever embrace as a Christian. You say, what's love? Well, it's all all in that. God is love. God is merciful. God is just. But God is sovereign. That means as as his child, there's not a single ounce of suffering in coming into your life that does not come from the heart and the hand of a loving Heavenly Father for good purposes. If there's anything of value that I say in two weeks, get a hold of that. Nothing you go through as a Christian is maliciously designed to hurt you. It is to help you. It's not to destroy you. It is to develop you. And that's why, again, the church, we have to constantly remind each other of that. We have to weep with each other. We have to reach out and not give pat answers or just quote a bunch of scripture. Yes, share truth, but be very mindful where people are in their suffering. Oftentimes, they need to be Job's friends the first seven days. Just listen. Well, God's sovereignty, here's three examples from the Old Testament. First Chronicles 29, 10-13, don't turn to it. David prays in the assembly. Therefore David blessed the Lord in the presence of all the assembly. And David said, Blessed are you, O Lord, the God of Israel, our Father, forever and ever. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. For all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. 
Both riches and honor come from you, and you rule over all. You will find God's sovereignty, a dominant characteristic in the prayers of the Bible. Read the prayers in the Bible and see how often God's sovereignty is recognized long before the petitions are offered. What about Nebuchadnezzar? He has to become a beast. He has to be kicked into the wilderness and become a beast. But notice when he got a hold of God's sovereignty. This is what we read of Nebuchadnezzar. My reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are counted as nothing. And he does according to his will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand. He does what he chooses to do. And no one can stop it. Jeremiah in Lamentations. Who has spoken it came to pass unless the Lord has commanded it. Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that good and bad come? And then we have the classic New Testament example. In Acts chapter 2, Peter's sermon at, the, at Pentecost. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men God raised up. Friends, God is sovereign over all things. He's sovereign over salvation. He's sovereign over your suffering. If he's not sovereign over salvation, or he's not sovereign over your suffering, then he's not sovereign at all. He's either completely sovereign or he's not. But I want to just, in the short time we have left, I want to give you three truths about suffering and the sovereignty of God, specifically for us as Christians. And the first one is this. God does not just allow suffering. And how many times have you heard that? How many times? There's liberal preachers that will preach at a funeral. Well, God didn't mean this. this, this you know, there's that stuff out there, that, that, the junk that you shouldn't even be listened to. Don't get into habit and say, well, God allowed this to happen. Yes, he allows, but let's understand with suffering, he doesn't just allow it. He sends it. God sends suffering. And when he sends suffering into your life, here's a little personal illustration. Um, since I've been gone so long, I'm allowed. So here's the personal illustration. But I want to tie this in because it's very, it's very applicable to you too. You're going to go through suffering. We already acknowledge that. Some of the suffering may be very severe. When you go into suffering, you are going to be confronted with three questions. Three very important questions. I heard these questions. No, the Lord didn't appear to me in my hospital bed, nor did he give me this audible, this voice. But these are, very three, these are three questions that are very real that you're going to have to deal with in your own life of suffering. The first one is this. Do you really believe in my sovereignty and that I am good? I wake up a, a little over a month ago, Monday, I go to bed Monday night, planning my week. Planning my week. I'm going to go to work. I'm going to work on Romans. I'm going to counsel some people. I'm going to visit. I'm going to, I just have my week all planned. Tuesday morning I wake up and I'm in the midst of a stroke. And the next thing you know, I'm in an ambulance being rushed to a hospital. By Tuesday late afternoon, early evening, I couldn't swallow. 
and my voice was gone. For the next 10 days, uh, I would be told that what is happening to you, um, it, it, it's a stroke that uh, attacks the nervous system and that there's the possibility that you will never uh, recover your speech or the ability to swallow. Jim, you may never swallow again. Jim, you may never, you may never have the ability to speak again. Three questions quickly came to my mind. And these are questions that, that is, is, is going to come to you in your suffering too at some time. And remember, how you answer these questions determines if your faith is real or not. Your attitude and your answers and your actions during suffering that is extreme determines whether your profession of faith is real or not. If you want to know if you're a real Christian, how do you respond to suffering? First question, do you really believe in my sovereignty? And let me make that personal. You don't sleep in hospitals. You're awake all the time. Jim, do you really believe in my sovereignty? You say you do. You preach you do. Do you believe in my sovereignty and that I'm good? Then the next question, will you gladly submit to my will? Which may include that you will never ever stand in front of your people again and preach. And the third question was, will you be content in me only? Not content on your gifts, or not content on your ministry, or not content on your ability to articulate, not content to even enjoy food. Well, will you be content just in me alone if you never recover from this? Friends, it's easy to believe in God's sovereignty when you're sailing through life in calm seas. It's easy to say your will be done when life is relatively problem-free. And it's easy to have the masquerading of a false contentment when there's no waves crashing over the bow of your ship. What struck me was these waves crashed over the bow of our ship. It wasn't by chance. The creator of the waves sent them. He sent them. And so when you look at suffering as a Christian, never look at it as something just happening to you. God has sent that to you. In 1680, there was was a Scottish coveter named Richard Cameron. The civil authorities had martyred him. His father was also imprisoned for his faith. His father's name was Alan. The heinous, malicious hatred of the civil authorities against the gospel and against these coveters, they cut off the head and the hands of his son. And they brought his hands and his heads to his imprisoned father and said, Whose are these? And his father said this, I know them. They are my sons, my own dear sons. It is the Lord Good is the will of the Lord who can wrong me nor mine, but has made goodness and mercy to follow us all our days. You know what that is? That's submission to sovereignty. That is contentment on the will of God. A great, great pain. The Apostle Paul, in writing to the Thessalonians, he would tell them, that we reminded you, 1 Thessalonians 3, he said, we remind you that we are destined for this. And we kept telling you beforehand that we are to suffer affliction. And writing to the Philippians, he would say this very profound truth. For it has been granted to you not only to believe on Christ, but to suffer for his namesake. Paul, in writing to Philippians, he says that God's gift of suffering to his children is just that. It's a gift. How do you feel when someone gives you a gift 
and a gift that you really enjoy. Do you complain about it? Oh, I don't want that. No. We're supposed to have the same embracing, glad embracing of suffering and say, Father, thank you for this gift. Because though I don't understand your ways now, I trust your ways now. And your sovereignty is going to use this for your glory and my good. Oh, please make me teachable. Make me respond in the fires of affliction that would exalt Christ and lessen my attention on myself. Did you ever think about Jonah? I know. Who put Jonah in the belly of the fish? This wasn't some random fish just swimming around. He sees Jonah and thinks he'd be a nice snack. God put Jonah in the fish. And God will bring suffering into your life. So don't, don't just say, well, God allowed this to happen. That's too passive of a God. Our God is an active God. Our God is involved in His people. God sends suffering. Here's the second thing about sovereignty, the Christian, and suffering. God not only sends it to us, but God uses suffering as a primary teaching tool. As a primary teaching tool. The last, uh, uh, look at uh, Psalm 119. Just a couple more and we'll be finished. Psalm 119, verse 67 and verse 71. Now when God sends suffering into our life, and there's many purposes, and we'll look at these purposes from Paul's life next week. But the teaching from suffering is around four specific areas. Four specific areas. One, to purge us. Suffering is primary to purge us of the ugliness of worldliness, of pride, of ease, and of selfishness. The second area that suffering is designed uh, for in the Christian is conformity to the image of Christ. The image of Christ. Conform us to the image of Christ. The third area that God will target in suffering in the life of a Christian, and that is that we would have glad submission to His sovereignty. And the fourth one would be that we would develop a patient, mature faith. So those are the four primary teaching areas that God wants, what God will do in our, in our suffering. Purge us, conform us, cause us to submit, and to develop a mature faith. But look at Psalm 119, verse 67. The psalmist says, Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your words. Do you know your greatest danger as a Christian? It's when nothing's really happening in your life. It's when life is manageable. There's no affliction. There's no suffering. Or there's the ir- irritation. But there's not the suffering that drives you to your knees. There's not the suffering that causes you to look at Jesus and say, I have nowhere else to go. God in His love, look what the psalmist says, before I was afflicted, I went astray. There was no suffering. There was no pain. There was none, no difficulty, so to speak. And the psalmist says, because I didn't have that, I drifted. Friends, you will drift spiritually without the, 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 the furnaces without the suffering that purges you from all these things but also look at verse 71 here's another thing uh, about the teaching power of God in suffering he says good for me that I was afflicted that I may learn your statutes 
He says, in the first thing, I was afflicted because I was drifting. Now he says, it's good that I was afflicted for, that I might learn your statutes. You know what suffering does if you, if you respond correctly? It softens your heart. It makes you teachable. And Isaiah 30 verse 20, And though the Lord give you the bread of adversity and the water of affliction, your teacher will not hide himself anymore. But your eyes shall see your teacher. And your eyes, ears shall hear a word behind you saying, this is the way, walk in it. When you turn to the right or when you turn to the left, God uses adversity in the water of affliction. He says, so that the teacher would be revealed. And friends, suffering is designed to keep you from drifting, but it's also designed to soften your heart so that you'll listen to the Lord as he teaches you through suffering. And here's the final one. Not only in the sovereignty of God and the Christian does God send suffering. Not only does he use it as a primary tool of teaching. But at the end of the day, God controls the length of your suffering. God controls the length of it. 1 Peter 5.10, and after you have suffered a little while. A little while means a bit. A short distance. Or time. My definition of a little while is likely ours. <laughs> or I, being so spiritual, it lasted four days in the hospital. Friends, you don't determine the length of your suffering. And don't try to get out of it. You just turn the heat up a little more. I mean, that's, that's what happens. But when you submit, member purging, submission, conformity, a mature faith... And you are willing to accept whatever he would have, short, long. And in the big scheme of things, how long is a long time in this life? So, suffering, it's inevitable for all of us. And if you're, if you're not a Christian today, let me, let me urge you to come to Christ. So let, let us help you. Jesus came to set the captives free. He came to release the oppressed. He came to take the burden of sin off of you, the very cause of suffering. And I'm not telling you to run to Jesus to fix your life and remove suffering from your life. No, your suffering will then have purpose. But what, what, what I'm urging you is run to Christ so that you'll have a suffering Savior that goes with you in life. And that if you die without Christ, you're going to go into a place of suffering that is indescribable. And so come to Christ, run to Christ. It's not your religion that'll never get it. Certainly won't relieve your suffering. But run to Christ. Confess, confess you're, you're a sinner. You've broken His holy law. That you have no way of helping yourself. Ask Him, grant me repentance, grant me faith. And by the authority of His, of his word, He will come to you. And you will meet the suffering Savior who will suffer with you because He suffered for you. And Christian... No more complaining. I know it's easy to say that. But Christian, complaining is one of the most heinous sins against God. It's blasphemy. It's rebellious against His sovereignty. And it may be the very reason why that you don't have deep joy. And why you're not enamored with the church. And why you're not interacting and and carrying the burdens of one another. It could very well be is that the sin of complaining and your suffering is dominating your life. Well, Lord willing, we're going to look at the Apostle Paul next week. 
And we're going to see some really good purposes in our suffering. Father, thank you so much for your word. and Thank you for uh, your gracious kind dealing with us. We all deserve suffering for eternity. And yet, in your love, you would send your son, who left the place of never knowing suffering, to suffer for us, to live a suffering life, to die a suffering death but yet to be raised for a liberating resurrection. So, Father, may we be sensitive uh, to suffering in our life. Make us teachable through our suffering. And make us submit to your sovereignty, knowing that you are good. And though we may not understand in the moment, help us to trust in the moment, because you are trustworthy. And we thank you in Christ's name. Amen.